Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. Let's start with just a, a kind of an overview of this model of becoming indistractable. There are only four steps. The first one is to master these internal triggers, but in order to really understand you know, how do we uh, avoid distraction? Let's, let's make sure we define the term so we understand what we're talking about. To understand what distraction is, we have to understand what it is not. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Mm-hmm. That both words come the, from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And both words end in the same five letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So mm-hmm. traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction. Any action you do that pulls you away from what you want to do with intent. So that's a really important point. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So the second step, after we've mastered the internal triggers, the second step is to make time for traction. And that means we have to plan out our day. And we can talk about those strategies as well. The third step, is to hack back the external triggers. We know that what pulls us towards either traction or distraction, what prompts us, are either these internal triggers or external triggers. So internal triggers we have to start within, we have to figure out strategies to cope with this discomfort. But we can also do all kinds of things to hack back the external triggers that lead us to traction or distraction. Now, the external triggers are the usual suspects, you know, the pings, dings, and rings, all of these things in our environment that prompt us to either traction or distraction. But what many folks don't realize is that, that there are these, these uh, external triggers go well beyond just our devices, right? The open floor plan office, huge source of distraction. Of course, email, group chat, meetings. Oh my God, what a huge distraction meetings can be for the average knowledge worker. So there are all these environments in our life that we have to hack back these external triggers. And then finally, the fourth step is that we can prevent distraction with pacts. So The antidote for impulsiveness is forethought. That was Nir Ayal, our second guest this season on the Product Science Podcast and author of the book, Indistractable. We had a great conversation about how to minimize the distractions in your life and get that traction Nir talks about. So we're wrapping up season two of the Product Science Podcast, and I wanted to take this final episode to highlight some of the amazing insights our guests have shared over the past six months. At HR Product Science, we use the product science method to help organizations develop an evidence-based growth plan. So I wanted to share our guests' highlights within the framework of the product science method. The product science method works through three main steps to better understand your customers, understand the market that you're working in, and then lay the foundations for long-term growth. Throughout the process, you're continuously doing customer research, gathering data to gain new insights, and iterating and testing to challenge your assumptions. So we'll start with step one, 
understand your customers. Great products and great companies are customer obsessed. If you wanna build something truly innovative, you've gotta start by empathizing with your customer. The best way to do this is to talk to them, lots of them. It goes beyond user interviews though. In order to build something truly useful for them, you'll need user science, the application of psychological and behavior science principles to understand and predict user behavior. What was so interesting is that all of the techniques and approaches and build better products, yes, they're just good ways, good methods to build products, but they're also much more deeply integrated with what I would call modern software, modern product creation, including agile behaviors over waterfall and not a lot of big upfront research and design, but integrating that research and design through the process. Um, and being an absolutely user research is a core fundamental part of great products. And so what I thought was interesting is for people who are coming into the product world now, lean is so pervasive that it's kind of like, well, of course, like this is not a big deal. Like stop fighting the war, the battle, you know, stop fighting the battles, the war has been won kind of thing, because it makes sense. It makes sense that you would ask a question and see to what degree you could prove that it's true or see evidence that it's true. That just makes sense. People have been learning the scientific method for years and years. And so for younger designers or newly minted designers coming into the world, they're very comfortable with this sense of validation, using research, using um, usability testing to gain insight to how they can improve their designs. That was Kate Rudder, adjunct professor of design at the California College of the Arts and our guest on episode seven. So another of our guests who has a lot to say about understanding your users was Audrey Crane, who we spoke to in episode 19 about her recent book, What CEOs Need to Know About Design. There were many useful things in this interview, including uh, talking about how nobody has any clue what a designer actually does. But I wanted to share a clip where she talks about this idea of the crystal goblet, um, which I think is so important when it comes to getting everything you can out of your conversations with users. You really need to be cautious with how you approach user research to make sure that you're not just talking to your customers, but you're also learning and taking away the right things. So here's Audrey on that. We kind of run this workshop for, for business leaders and, and again, product managers and entrepreneurs to help them learn to put a different hat on. And I use a metaphor with them. Um, there's a great essay by a typographer, Beatrice Ward, called The Crystal Goblet. And she's writing about typography, but very briefly, what she says is, if as a typographer you do your job right, it's kind of like being a great wine glass. You're thin, you're transparent, you're creating space. Nobody really notices you. Nobody notices the glass, right? Because the whole reason for the glass to be there is to create, is to make the wine the best that it can be so that you can smell it better and see the color better and taste it better. And so she makes this um parallel to typography, that nobody should notice the size of the gutters or the font you picked or the line spacing. They should just be able to take in the content that you typeset at its best. So I, I take that analogy and apply it to conducting research with users. And I say, you guys need to be the crystal goblets. You need to be present as little as possible. And there's all these specific tips about how to do that. Like, be quiet, count to five in your head for, you know, if there's 
silence to see if they'll fill that space in. Don't use your own words, use their words. Um, don't ask leading questions. In fact, kind of don't ask questions, ask these kind of trailing questions. So would you say the experience of using this product was, see that's awkward and you wanna say something right now. And so saying, was it good, was it bad, was it good or bad, right? And so um, I have seen every time I run this workshop, the first thing somebody says is, that was way harder than I thought it was gonna be, which is great. Cause it, it's not rocket science, but understanding that you really need to apply yourself um, to take off your charismatic hat and be as boring <laughs> as you can possibly be, as not there as possible and make space for that person to fill and you will learn so much. All right, so thanks to Audrey for that wonderful conversation. I wanted to share a little bit more about how we at HR Product Science look to make sense of what we talk to and hear from our users. At the end of the day, your focus needs to be identifying their pains and identifying their ideal outcomes. Once you start to see consistency in patterns, you can draft a customer problem statement to put your plan on paper. What problem does the customer have that you are best positioned to solve? In episode 21, we talked to product coach Jim Morris about how transitioning to this sort of process can be transformational for a development team and how he saw it for himself. So it was a really, it was an educational opportunity. It was educational on the product side because that's when I went to my first, uh, really only Marty Kagan seminar. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment I realized I'd been doing everything the hard way. Yeah. Because I was building all the software. I was an engineer. I hired engineers. My tool of choice was engineering. You gave yeah. me a problem. I just wrote software. I wrote software. I had teams write software. I didn't know how to solve it. Remember, I didn't know how to manage product managers. So with that moment, that aha moment, um, which many people have at his seminars, I realized, okay, there's a different way to do this that's faster than coding. And you basically use design and what we now call product discovery to figure these things out with consumers, with your customer before you make it. And to me, it became really valuable actually about a year or so later. Because it's hard to actually adopt these techniques when you're in a, in a company that has its own way of doing things, right? Uh-huh. One of the challenges of, of being a product discovery coach, as, as you know. So to know your market, you need to take those insights that you got from understanding your customer and start to quantify it. You want to look at the data and try to find out what behaviors happen across the market. How many people have these behaviors? How many people have these unmet needs? How many people are looking for these outcomes? And how deeply they're feeling these pains and problems. That's what's going to give you a sense of whether there's actually a business to solving this pain. I call these the, the golden nuggets, or the golden insights. And one of the key ways that we like to go looking for this is to use segmentation to compare behaviors and metrics across groups within that market. In episode 13, we caught up with David Bland, founder of Precoil and author of Testing Business Ideas, who understandably had a lot to say on this topic. Here's David. It's really interesting for me to see crowdfunding kind of play a bigger role now, but you could also do pre-sales, mock sales. Um, there are a lot of things you could do on landing pages where you're price testing different product tiers, like some different service tiers of, um, hey, we have this tier, this tier, and this tier. And when they click on one, it doesn't mean you build them right away, but th there could be a, hey, we're still working on this. We're not ready yet. Do you want to give us your email for you know, when we're going to roll out this tier? And, you know, there's some case studies in the book of companies that did that too in the past, but I think um, where it gets a little, I don't, I don't want to say a little awkward or maybe uncomfortable for product managers is that 
it becomes really obvious that you're influencing the business there. And I think um, product managers should embrace that because I feel that is part of the role is product and business are very integrated. You know, it's, it's almost like a system. And so you can't have this amazing product and no business model because you'll fail. And you also can't have an amazing business model and a, a terrible product and you're going to fail. So I think as product managers kind of grow and embrace experimentation and, and uh, mature, I think they're going to find that they have this responsibility to do more of this testing to help, to help educate business. Because I've seen this happen in the past where people build an amazing product and they kind of throw it over the wall and say, okay, figure out how to charge for this. <laughs> and that never ends well, by the way, <laughs> because it's like, you're asking somebody with almost no context of all the experiments you read and, and how you've grown and developed this product to say, okay, now just come up with like a, a, a model for it and just to sell it. And so I, I do think earlier on, you know, we need to be testing for viability. Certainly like the R&D groups, innovation labs I deal with at big companies, they're being asked to come up with business models now, which terrifies them, by the way, because it was pretty much a business model free zone <laughs> in the past. And so uh, they need to level up. And, and then certainly there's some tools and everything out there that they can use now. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just anxiety around viability, but I am a big believer in testing that earlier on if possible, and then helping that inform the conversation when you go bigger later, you wanna scale something. You wanna know you've kind of tested, tested the model out. So in this phase of knowing your market, one of the keys is product market fit. It's that elusive holy grail that everyone talks about and everyone debates what it means to have it and whether you can measure it. The way that we look at product market fit is to say that it's not just understanding the market, understanding the product, but understanding your product's place within it and how your product is performing. What are you disrupting? What are you doing differently? What are you doing that nobody else is doing? And how sustainable is this? Are you seeing growth metrics that are organic that will keep growing themselves? Have you figured out a growth machine? So at this stage of planning a high growth plan, you're, you may not have product market fit. You're probably in the early stages of it, or if you've already got it at your company, then we might be talking about a high growth plan for another branch of products there. So the question is, what will it look like when you have it? And how do you know if it's even possible? One of our guests who had much to say about product market fit was Heather Browning, VP of product at RIA Health, who had some special insights about this related to her experience in educational game development. She shared these with us in episode 16. As I worked with the early stage startups, I initially went into UX design and then product, mostly from you know, the advantage of being on small teams and wearing many hats and finding, finding sort of the level of question that most interested me. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of what is actually going to be a good market fit mm -hmm. is the type of question that I was most interested in solving because, again, I had been be feeling very frustrated from making these amazing experiences and amazing products that then maybe didn't quite have enough of a market fit to take off. Mm. And that was sort of my, my move into product is really wanting to answer and understand those product market fit questions better. Those are some of the biggest questions that, you know, that come up at early stage startups. And, yeah. you know, I certainly talk to a lot of people who have the same frustration you just described. Um, so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit, I mean, if, if you're, um, if you're able to share a story about, you know, what, what were the things that you saw that the company you were at, I guess, did you get enough access to be able to 
do some of the research that would help you see like why it didn't reach product market fit or um, what it was like being there at that time? Yeah, well, I think actually in the in the educational game space, the the problem that I still think is yet to be cracked in educational technology and in general is is sort of how to actually get into the hands of students mm-hmm. and is just the sort of pipeline into schools has not yet been disrupted. And that was also a big reason why I didn't go ahead and start an educational company myself was the question that if you are in an educational tech that you have to have the answer to is how, how do you disrupt the pipeline into schools? Mm. And I, I just didn't have an answer to that question. And so without an answer to that question, it doesn't matter how like amazing, how engaging, how educational the software you build is because your sort of end user and your buyer is not the same person, that's Mm -hmm. a, you have to solve the how, how does, how is the person who's going to buy this going to do that? And I think that's really still an open question in educational software. Also, because it was such a great team and I really solidly stand by the educational efficacy and also the enjoyment of the games we made. I'm still, Mm -hmm. there's still some of the proudest things I've ever made. But, you know, it, it was a really great learning for me, especially as my like first job in software mm-hmm. and my first uh, venture back startup. It really helped me understand, I think, product in a way that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise, because if that had worked out, I would sort of just have this idea that, oh, if you make a good enough product, that's all you need. And that's just not, that's not the reality of what makes a startup work. Um, And I, so I, I'm really grateful for that experience and learned a lot out of it. And I think it really set me on the path I'm on now. Heather had her own experiences learning about product market fit and this uh, painful lesson that many product managers have to learn that building a good enough product isn't enough. You also have to have a business model that works with it. This also makes me think of Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media and our first guest of the season. We had a wide-ranging conversation that is definitely worth listening to in its entirety, one of my favorites. But one thing that stuck with me was this idea that maybe we're thinking about markets the wrong way. And of course, you see this in the political debate today, you know, where people are starting to, to say again, wait a minute, what, we built an economy where some people, uh, you know, win really, really big and other people don't. And, and, and again, it's not, it's not that simple because even in, you know, the, the parallel between, say, an Uber in which passengers really win and, uh, and Uber really wins, but drivers get screwed, is kind of analogous to you know, the free trade regime that we have in uh, today where uh, you know, giant corporations really, really win, people in developing countries really, really win, and uh, American uh, you know, workers were left out in the cold. And, you know, so the question is, how do we build better markets? There's, there's a book I love. It was actually given to me by Uber's chief economist. It's called Who Gets What and Why? And it's by a guy named Al Roth, who's a Stanford economics professor, uh, who basically founded a field called market design. And he got a Nobel Prize for his work on redesigning uh, kidney transplant marketplaces so they could be more efficient. And, and this idea 
that uh, has obsessed me over the last uh, you know four or five years has been you know the great opportunity of AI and big data systems is actually to design better markets. And we, we think that we have this optimal market where it's just the invisible hand and people competing and so on. But, but we're really moving into a world of algorithmically controlled markets and have the best intentions. We're gonna bring the world together by sharing and discover that the market you've created is actually a very bad market. And then you have to redesign and, and, and intervene. And so this, uh, you know, what I'm really spending a lot of time doing is trying to wake up Silicon Valley to the idea that the market is not a given, that it's something you have to design and you have to design it uh, with everyone in mind. So those are some great insights from Tim on understanding and even building and designing your market. Once you've done that work and you've got a better grip on what that market looks like, and that there's really an opportunity for a business there. Now it's time to lay the foundations. This is what you're going to set out to make sure that your product team, your product developers, your product designers, your product managers know the right information for them to move forward and to be able to move forward iteratively without getting stuck in bureaucratic quagmires every time they need to make a change to the plan. So this third step in the product science method, this step of laying the foundations, is where you actually create the structures that set you up for long-term success and make a plan for growth. This is going to include designs, design principles. It's going to include key metrics, key results, talking about how you measure success. It's also going to include the infrastructure and the systems of communication within and across teams, the way they work together, the way they check in with leaders and stakeholders. Having that set up right is key to setting up a high growth product team. So I want to share what some of our guests had to say on this. In episode 10, bioscience researcher and product development expert Susan Gable explains the balance you need to strike between your big goals and the metrics it takes to get you there. Here's Susan. You also have to have the component of the vision. And so if you take the vision and you really focus it down on core values. And when I sit there and I, and I say 10 years out, three years out, one year out, where am I going to be? You have to be able to feel that in your core. And if you can't feel it in your core after going through all the processes and the exercises that EOS will take you through, you haven't got it yet. The visionary comes in and he's got a thousand great ideas and he comes it over to the bomb squad and the bomb squad sifts and sorts with the, the vision and the document about the values and this idea when we measure it up, this works and this one we, you know, we really, we can't resource it yet. It's a good idea, but we're going to put it on the shelf for just a minute and we're going to focus in on these ideas when we go through growth hacking and when we go through product iteration. And so let's, let's make sure we've done a really good job at evaluating our resources. Let's make sure that we have absolutely everything that we need in order to successfully iterate, right? That's, I, I find that that is one of the big challenges with the chaotic startup is everybody's so busy doing, they forget to just take that time. It really is valuable to take the step back and go, do I have the the data? Do I have KPIs? Do I have metrics? Am I using the right metrics, the leading metrics, the lagging metrics? Am I using vanity metrics? And that's really where EOS starts to come in and go people, vision, data, processes. And when that all hits the road, now you've got traction. So like Susan talks about, this stage of the product science method is the stage where the rubber truly meets the road. 
This is also the place where you're going to start thinking about a roadmap. How are you going to answer executives' requests when they ask for one, or stakeholders, or salespeople? And how do you set up enough guideposts for the team to understand where they're going? So a lot of people, when they hear a roadmap, they think about this feature-based roadmap where the executive team asks you to say what you're going to build and when you're going to build it before you've even finished doing the work or doing the discovery research or figuring out what technical hurdles you're going to have to overcome. A lot of us have been there and know how difficult and painful that is. And I really love what Marty Kagan has to say about the problem with roadmaps. So instead, we do an outcomes-based roadmap at HDR Product Science, which focuses on setting up a sequence of what user outcomes you're going to drive in each stage of your work and making sure that each of those user outcomes has a clear key metric that measures whether you're getting there. Using that to keep your team aligned and to communicate to your stakeholders and your executives what it is that you're going to be doing in each phase of work. That'll let you know you're on the right track. For Jana Bastow, founder and CEO of ProdPad, and our guest on episode three, it came down to identifying user behaviors that impacted their conversion rate. She'll tell you about that here. So we had a uh, pretty high drop-off rate from the trial sign-up. Uh, and so we decided to really, really focus down. We had to drop everything we were doing, all development work, all work that we were doing, and focus on improving this one conversion rate. And at the expense of all of our work, uh, we cut down all of our cost base, everything, and focused on this one conversion rate. And it worked. We managed to do a few things. So one of them was we actually focused on uh, changing the trial length. So we used to have a 30-day trial, but we looked at the, um, the numbers and we did an analysis and we looked at what kind of activities people would do in their trial. Um, and we realized that we could tell with 85% certainty by day nine, who was likely to buy or not. And so if we realized who was gonna buy by day nine, why did they have an extra 21 days to make up their mind or not? Why don't we just ask them for the credit card on day nine or some other day? Why 30 days? 30 days is just an arbitrary thing. So we actually chopped the trial time in half. And actually, at that point in time, our trial conversion rate went up because the new cohort had less time. And because they had less time, they actually felt more pressure to use more of the features. And by using more of the features, they actually got more of the value. Because if somebody uses the features, they're like, oh, now I, I've used the features. I now know how to use the features. And therefore, I see more value. And I'm more willing to give you my credit card. So now when you join ProdPad, you actually get seven days. But if you do key actions, like fill in your company name, you get two days free. Um, tell us the name of your product, get a couple days, add your first idea, get a day free, uh, set up a JIRA integration, get four days free, uh, invite a colleague, get a few days free, add your billing information, get some extra days free. So you actually earn extra trial time based on how you're actually using the app itself. And so what's the, what this is actually doing, each time you do these actions, you get a little demo of how to do it and, and that sort of thing. So people are learning how to use the app as they're going. So they're getting that demo. They're learning how to use each of the pieces of the app um, and they're unlocking pieces of the app and they're also getting the additional trial time that they wanted. Uh, and this itself actually bumped our conversion rate up hugely uh, and bumped our numbers up uh, and got us out of that slump that we had in 2015. So in, instead of solving it by throwing money at it and throwing investors at it, we solved it by throwing more of a UX and product mind at it. I just love what Jenna has to say about roadmaps. So another guest who had helpful things to say about setting up the foundations was Dan Mellinger, who's principal consultant at Real-Time Labs and learned a lot in his time at such companies as FanDuel, where he lived through their high growth period. 
He emphasized why organizing your team around key metrics is so important for sustained growth. Here's Dan. When you can have very clearly a stated objective for your team that, that everyone understands, and, and part of that is understanding how you measure success, that's the key results, their KPIs or metrics that are, that are ideally numbers and, what, and, and you define what looks like success, you can, you can point to that and say, is this working or is this not? And you all generally come up with the same answer or can at least get to the same answer. And that was a great tool for aligning us and also for ensuring that people understood at any given moment, whatever they're doing, am I helping us work towards achievement of these objectives? And that, you know, that really helped us as an organization. And, I've, and, and since then, I've helped other organizations kind of implement, implement OKRs and have found it to be, it's, it's trick, it can be tricky, especially if the organization, if an organization already has that philosophically, like, oh yes, like we understand we're objective focused. Many don't, and that can be tricky because it's a cultural shift. Um, but I think it's incredibly powerful cultural shift and, and often one that it's worth investing some, some time and even some pain in, uh, in, in making. So what's important to remember here is that there's no magic formula. There's no silver bullet. There's no world where you set something up and then just sit back and watch it happen. Continuous growth is about continuous practice, intentional practice. So you're always striking a balance between what changes you need to make and what will work with your team and organization. This came up in my conversation with John Cutler for episode nine. He's a product evangelist at Amplitude, but has seen a lot over his long and wide ranging career in product. Not to mention the time he spent driving a rickshaw and developing indie games in New York City. And so I think it's just, you know, I wrote this post called The Way of Ways and like everything is just like this. And once you, once you see it, and this goes back though to, there's so much talking. How are you doing? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing week in, week out? And what I've noticed at the end of the day is a lot of these, this is where technical practices and I have so much admiration for the engineering leaders who kind of create the momentum here. Half the anxiety with product managers and all these things is that like the ability to have like resilient technology that can accommodate some of these changes and learning and, and uh, you know, not shipping every day or every hour, but just at the right cadence to learn that you need to learn without overwhelming that team. So what you see is this wicked cycle is like when you don't have love on that side to create a resilient architecture and resilient things, you find all these silver bullets, which then make it even harder for them to do what they want, which then cause more silver bullets, which means you play more Tetris. And then before you know it, like no amount of reading Marty Kagan posts or, or talking about MVPs or doing whatever will work. Yet we're all sitting around with our thumbs like under our knees because we've, we've created the mess that now is causing nothing to be able to happen. So product is often, you know, unconsciously complicit in the, in the, you know, degradation or entropy of their whole like system that, that, that they have at their companies. And then they, there's this finger pointing game that goes on. But the reason I'm bringing that up is that there's a lot of talk stemming from just impatience and anxiety about our jobs. But when you're on a team, this is going to work and kicking butt. You, just, you spend a lot of time, less time talking about theoreticals and you talk about what's happening right now. What does the information say? What does the data say? What did that customer say? What did we learn this week? You, you're, that's why we don't see as many blog posts from the companies that are kicking ass. When it comes down to it, getting that balance right is the key. Knowing you need to make a change is important, 
but there are some changes you don't want to make overnight or even in a year. This also came up when I spoke with Babur Habib, who has an extensive background in ed tech, but has now found himself trying to create organizational change and innovation in a different way as founder and CEO of the Portfolio School. Here's Babur. You can't change things too quickly, uh, especially in a school kind of setting. And But if you're changing it, you have to go to your core principles as well to understand, hey, this is why we we believe we started this. What are the values there that we can't like just give up on, you know? And also, I think there's a, in, in that vein, one of the things that when you're looking at sort of making a, you know, you're looking at a really big product, like, you know, okay, we want to change the game for schools. You know, that's not a, a sort of a small idea. It's a big idea. Right, and how do you tackle something that big, and figure out how you're going to break it down and work on things in the that are most important in the beginning stages, and how you're going to wedge yourself into an already very big ecosystem, and then be able to expand from there. I think that's you know as opposed to building sort of like products which may be. Uh, you know, improving on a couple of features or, you know, are sort of smaller in scope. If there are, you know, entrepreneurs, product designers who are thinking about sort of like, I hate using this word, but that's uh, disrupting like certain industries, right? I mean, I think uh, you have to always keep an eye on that big idea, but then be be very sort of focused on, okay, how are you going to get into it? What are you going to do in your first few years? How are you going to then grow from there? You know, um, those are important things too. And what are the things you're going to keep changing, keep iterating on? That'll actually take you there to that big idea or the big goal that you, you, you have in mind. So what comes up again and again with all of our guests on the Product Science Podcast are a few simple takeaways. Don't be afraid to admit when you don't know something, but make sure you figure out how to fill in that gap with actual user and market research. Don't be afraid of failure because in every failure is an opportunity to learn how to do things better. Even better than that, plan a system of working that expects and celebrates learning over planning and everyone will get comfortable with the failures along the way. Season two has been filled with great conversations, so be sure to check them all out at our website, h2rproductscience.com, or subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on if you haven't already. And if you haven't yet, I'd love to have you subscribe to our newsletter as well, the Product Science Journal. If you are subscribed, you may notice I haven't sent any out in a while. I've been um, going through some some challenges, but I'm getting it back on the rails and hoping to start sending some out soon. So please join if you haven't yet, and you'll start getting messages from me. I'm looking forward to new conversations and insights in season three. For now, keep learning, keep improving, and I'll catch you soon on the Product Science Podcast. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at each of our product science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops. 
The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.